0: To be honest, I've had a bit of a schizophrenic perspective when it comes to anything called Mission Sunday. Let me explain that. On the one hand, of course, I'm thrilled with any opportunity or emphasis that cross cultural missions has in the life of a local church. Very few churches give too much emphasis to the Great Commission, to the gospel, to the nations. But on the other hand, to have a Mission Sunday can give the impression that the Great Commission is but one of many uh, important, worthy things that the local church does, and every so often we throw a bone to the Great Commission, and then we retreat and do all the other things that we would like to. In other words, the Great Commission has its place, which is once in a while. The biggest problem with that, of course, is that the Great Commission wasn't just one emphasis in a a grand potpourri of Jesus-endorsed purposes. The Great Commission was the purpose, is the purpose that Jesus gives to his bride. And nothing that takes place in the church takes place disconnected from our grand calling to announce the gospel to the nations. In other words, as you've heard it said a time or two before, to be called into Jesus as family is to be drafted into Jesus's mission. Every Sunday Think about it is mission Sunday for the local church. Every day is mission involvement for a follower of Jesus Christ. Those aren't just empty words or things that you might expect me to say. They ring out from the Bible. Now a great reality about Grace Polaris Church in particular is that that has been taught and that has been practiced, and that has been embraced by so many of you, not just for months or years, but some for decades. The Great Commission has not been a sideshow, but it's been when we're at our best central to who we are as a church. And I want to say this morning, I want to commend so many of you, hundreds and hundreds of you whose lives demonstrate that. And I want to commend the leadership of this church going decades into the past, Pastor Jim and many others, to the very present, Pastor Zach and others, for the emphasis on the Great Commission, as Jesus call in our lives. The cause, the calling of the gospel to the nations has been resilient through the history of Grace Polaris Church. Pastor Zach's assigned me the topic, how does the church engage in global missions? So I want to begin first with a big idea, a main idea this morning, and then divide our focus into two parts. The first part is one of commendation, of thanks. To this church, Grace Polaris Church, as a former pastor, as a new executive director, as a current elder and member for your commitment to mission. And I think we have biblical precedent, we'll see it in the scriptures, for the kind of church that this church is. And then, perhaps a bit longer this morning, I'd like to cast vision and challenge for how This church, our church, can have greater, more widespread involvement and vision for what we can be in the years to come or until Jesus Christ returns. You have in your worship program there a lot of blank space because there are certain things that will resonate with you this morning. So I'd invite you to write down that which captures your attention, which the Holy Spirit puts on your heart, and to take those notes that you write down with you today, this week, and beyond. Here's the big idea today. Jesus invites the whole church to invest their lives in his mission. Jesus invites the whole church to invest their lives in his mission. Let's begin with a commendation for Grace Polaris Church. And as we do so, turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And it's there that I want to show you to draw a parallel between Grace Polaris Church and the church back in Thessalonica 2,000 years ago, the DNA and the influence between them. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. You'll see someone in the aisle there who would be glad to give you that or a worship program as you follow along. 1 Thessalonians Chapter 1, a city and a church 2,000 years ago that is remarkably connected to the kind of church that this is. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to read the first 10 verses of that. I'm reading from the New International Version. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. Paul writing to this church. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace To you, We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is God's word. Thank you. You may be seated. Largely out of this very passage of scripture, I'd like to highlight six characteristics of Great Commission churches and world Christians. Perhaps the phrase Great Commission churches seems relatively clear to you. Those are churches whose reason for being, whose purpose for existence is oriented around participation and progress in Jesus' commission. Of course, that implies that there are churches, unfortunately many, whose reason and purpose is something other than or different than the commission Jesus gave to us. It's not, after all, in what we say, but it's in what we do that we show our priority of Jesus' calling. A great commissioned church is resolute that Jesus sets the agenda for our life and ministry. I used another phrase there, though, that might be a little more obscure, the the phrase world Christian. And and when I'm using that phrase, I'm speaking of people, individuals, whose personal purpose is to actively, to persistently participate in God's bigger plan for the nations. Not simply people who want to obey God and live holy lives, though that is extremely laudable. Not only people who move to another part of the planet, for if that were the case, then most of us wouldn't be a world Christian. No, a world Christian, as David Bryant helpfully says, is a person, a day-to-day disciple, for whom Christ's global cause has become their integrating, overriding priority. Let me say that again. A world Christian is a day-to-day disciple for whom Christ's global cause has become their integrating, overriding priority. I like that. I think that's biblical. I want that to be my identity and my purpose in life. And I believe that Jesus wants that to describe every person who knows him and has been called not only into his family, but also into his mission. And that, if you know Jesus, includes you. So what characterizes Great Commission churches? What characterizes world Christians? Let let me describe some key traits that are linked up with what Paul says about the church in Thessalonica that I believe are true of ...so many today. They serve as a model for us. Great commissioned churches and world Christians. Six characteristics. Of the first are active worshipers... ...with their hearts and their lives. We see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1... ...but especially in verse 3. Paul describes the fact that their life... ...is a life of worship to Jesus. That's a world Christian. A great commissioned church. Secondly, whose lives are marked by a glad obedience... ...to Jesus as Lord... Look at verses 6 and 7 in this passage. These are people who follow Jesus whatever he says. Third characteristic, these are people who are humbled by the ongoing grace of the gospel. You'll notice there that these are people chosen by God. In the end, our salvation is not because we were lovely or because we were intelligent. It was because the grace of God found its way into our lives. And a world Christian says, wow, ...that the Lord chose me. Fourth, these are people, these are churches... ...who are intriguing to those who observe them. One of the most powerful and praiseworthy descriptions of a local church... ...is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. This church became a model... Not only in their own locale, but in their region, in their country. Yes, to the known world, Paul says. Their message, their lives rang out. Fifth, they are courageous in their witness, locally, regionally, and globally. The scent of their lives went through the people that moved or were sent out from among them. Finally, six, Great Commission churches and world Christians are clear on the core of the gospel. You've heard it many times, Pastor Zach said it in recent months. We can summarize the gospel in a number of ways. Perhaps the most helpful is that uh, four-part God, man, Christ response. God made us in his image, loves us, and we're accountable to him. Because of sin, we stand under, rightfully, his condemnation and are bound for a Christless eternity. But because of Christ, sent by God, who offers salvation through his perfect life, his Death on our behalf is resurrection power. You and I can be restored, reconciled to God. And through repentance and faith, we can have that as our own destiny and identity. Paul summarizes here at the end of this particular chapter two things in relation to our response repentance and faith. Turn from sin, trust in Christ. And these people, Paul writes, have a secure, confident identity that at the end of time, the salvation of their souls will be their reality. And I know that there are many, many people who are in this room this morning who know Jesus Christ, who have that same confidence, come what may, in life. I applaud you individually. I applaud this church for being a Thessalonians type of church whose testimony rings out to the world. But I'd like to turn our attention now to the second and perhaps longer part this morning, a challenge to Grace Polaris Church, not to what we have been, not even to what we are in the present, but rather who we can be, and I trust will be, in the months and years to come. In other words, I want to challenge this beloved church to greater involvement and investment in these last days and to a widespread investment in the world. Because when we say the whole church, that includes, that embodies individuals like you and like me. And I believe Paul, I believe Jesus would challenge us to be a radical Great Commission church for each of us in our own lives to be world Christians. Most of you are familiar with the Great Commission. We have several different versions in our Bibles. In each of the Gospels, the one most well-known to us is in Matthew chapter 28, verses 17 to 20. It reads like this. I'll begin in verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, remember, this was the resurrected Christ. They didn't quite know what to do with him. They worshipped him. They fell on their faces, but some doubted. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey, to heed, to observe everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. There are a lot of key words and phrases here. Some of you have studied them. You've certainly heard sermons about them. For our purposes today, I'd like to highlight three of them. First of all, the very basic question, what is a disciple? It's a topic that should, should accompany every believer. It's a it's a topic that should consume every church leader. For if we're called to make disciples among the nations, what does it mean to be and to make disciples in our own lives? A disciple, quite simply, is someone who follows a master and who imitates or obeys whatever the master says. That master has say in our lives, that master sets the priorities, that master announces the boundaries, that master establishes our posture. That master models how we love. That master provides discipline. That master offers hope. And the delight of our discipleship, friends, is that our master, if we know Jesus, is good and he's gentle and he's patient. Which makes following Jesus not simply a duty, but a delight because this master ...is for us and works in us. And yet Jesus, we should remind ourselves again and again... ...remains our master, our Lord. Second question, who are the nations? The the word nations in our Bible, as you've heard before... ...should probably be translated people group or ethnic group. A, A nation, an ethnos, is usually a group that's distinguished... ...either by common language or by common geography, or by common ancestry, and often all three of them. Language, ancestry, geography. These are the people that are not part of we, but we think of as them. And that means most of the world for all of us. Jesus calls us to make disciples among them. And in order to reach the nations followers of Jesus are going to have to go. We're going to have to cross cultural boundaries in order to bring them the gospel. And in terms of the gospel itself, there are yet many unreached or least reached nations, people groups in our world. This is football season, so let's use a football analogy. The gospel has progressed greatly. There's been gospel advance to the cities, to the rural areas, to the islands in our world, we are in the red zone. We are within 20 yards, to use football terminology. But as you know, some of the hardest yards to get are the yards before the touchdown. And so it is with the mission of Jesus Christ. We are in the red zone, friends. God is at work. But this is the hard slog before he comes back the tough places, the difficult soil. How will those nations be reached? Jesus calls us to go. Third question there from this passage, what, when is the end of the age? Jesus reminds us wonderfully that he would be present with us until the end of the age. And until then, we're supposed to be about the master's business making disciples among the nations. Our mandate is important and our mandate is urgent. This past week has reminded us vividly of the depravity of the evil of our world. It's reminded us of our great need for the Prince of Peace. Our hearts grieve as we watch or hear the news about human hate and evil. And in a lot of conversations that you've had and certainly that I've had, the the remark has been frequent, something to the effect of, this sure seems like the end times, don't you think? That's not a difficult question. Because the Bible tells us that we are living in the last days, in the end times. The answers are resounding yes. We don't need the news to tell us that. The second question more frequently voiced perhaps in the last week than before, but often accompanying that is, how are these events in our world related to the end times? And the answer is, we don't know. We know that they are related, but we don't specifically know how they are related. In fact, we probably won't know until we see in hindsight what God was doing. Only the Father knows even when Jesus will return, he said. So in light of that, when the world leaves us unsettled, and you're probably unsettled this week, I am, it should lead us not to speculation, but to action. Let me say that again. When the world leaves you unsettled, it should lead us not to speculation, but to action. Our concern should be less, this is that. This event happening in our world or in some location is that phrase or that sentence or that verse in scripture. Less, this is that, but this means that. In other words, in light of the chaos and evil in our world, especially in the Mideast in our time, this means that we redouble redouble our efforts toward the Great Commission. You see, God's clock is ticking, and his gospel saves, amen? And his wrath is coming, Paul writes. Two weeks ago, I joined our pastoral staff at the Gospel Coalition Conference in Indianapolis. That conference has uh, been going on every other year since 2007. I think I've missed two, and with the possible exception of one, they've almost always been extremely refreshing and reinvigorating for me. It's not always the plenary sessions with the the big speakers, but sometimes it's in the workshops or what they call micro events that I, I hear something that resonates with me. That was certainly the case several weeks ago. A man by the name of David Platt, some of you know that name, interviewed a man by the name of John Piper, still more know that, in a brief Gathering called How Every Local Church Can and Must Fuel Global Missions. You won't be surprised that my antenna went up. Here's a brief clip from that interview on the completion of the Great Commission from John Piper.
1: The number of peoples, those people aren't all going to be converted. They're not intended to all be converted. The peoples are intended to be reached. And given the number of churches there are in the world, this is doable. I mean, all it takes is for a spark to land, and it's doable within our lifetime. And I believe, okay, put my cards on the table here, Matthew 24, 14. I really believe this. This gospel will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, I don't know, and you don't know when it's done. I just believe it's finishable, I believe it's finishable before you're dead. Maybe not before I'm dead, but before you're dead, it's finishable. And that, if, if, you, if you love the coming of the Lord, which I do, and you believe that 2 Peter 3.10, when it says, um, hasten the day of God, which is a really paradoxical thing to say since God is fixed with his own authority when he's going to come, that means, I think, be about the business of finishing the great day the Great Commission.
0: Be about the business of finishing the Great Commission. John Piper is a 77 year old body wrapped up in a 20 year old passion a theologian, a pastor, a writer. Multiple talks and books that he has given or written have deeply impacted my life. I remember in 1986, I got a hold of the book a few years later, Desiring God was revolutionary for me. A few years later, in 1993, he wrote the book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Great song title, by the way. Let the Nations Be Glad. And in, the, in that book, I think the first page, he said he wrote something that has resonated with me ever since. And I want you to see it. We have it on the screen here. John Piper describes the connection between being a worshiper of Jesus and being a witness to Jesus too. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall in their faces before the throne of God, Pastor Zach read that a few moments ago, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. He continues worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white hot enjoyment of God's glory. But worship is also the fuel of missions. Passion for God in worship precedes the offer of God in preaching and witness. You can't commend what you don't cherish. Missions begins and ends in worship. It's powerful. It's persuasive. It's inspiring. Even life-changing. The call of Jesus to his church is to make disciples Among the nations. So it begs the question how do we do that? How do we pursue that? How do we participate in that? What are the habits? What are the commitments? What are the patterns in our lives for Great Commission churches and for world Christians for whom God's cause has become our overriding priority? These are the on the ground questions that you and I in the seats ask ourselves. What does that mean? For me, for us. And in our moments, remaining moments together, I'd like to go through five things, five areas of our lives in which you and I, and especially we, can participate tangibly, meaningfully in the Great Commission. First word is the word pray. For if the Great Commission is a spiritual work, it depends upon spiritual power, and spiritual power comes from God. It's hard to improve on the prayers of Paul in the New Testament as he prayed and asked followers of Jesus to pray for him for the advance of the gospel. Here are three passages, First Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2. Just listen. Pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. Pray for the advance of the gospel, especially when it encounters hostile places. Those pictures in your worship program, these people up here and many, many others find themselves often in very hostile spaces. Ephesians 6, 18 to 20. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me, Paul writes, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. I love it when Paul says, Pray that I would say what I ought to. Because when I think of Paul, I think he always knew what to say. But he didn't. He said, pray that I would know. And so you and I ask God, pray that I, we, they would know. Finally, Colossians 4, 3 and 4. Paul says, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Paul says, pray that I'd have courage, pray that I'd have clarity, pray for opportunities, pray. Let me encourage you to take advantage of resources that Encompass has related to our global workers and to our efforts as a fellowship of churches in the world. Go to EncompassWorldPartners.org slash pray. It's not rhetorical. Pull out your phones. Go to EncompassWorldPartners.org. .org pray. You got permission in the middle of the sermon to be on your phone looking there. And there are simple ways for you to sign up to know what to pray for gospel advance. Second thing, give. I can't explain so much of what God does. And one of them is that God has not distributed wealth evenly across history and across the globe. For reasons I have no idea why, 21st century America is incredibly wealthy compared to the rest of the world. Whatever our flaws are as the Church of Jesus Christ here, and we have many, the fact is that there are still tens of millions of born-again, evangelical, Bible-aligned believers in this country, praise God. And to whom much is given, much is expected and invited. My plea is simply to you as one of those believers in America, give generously first to the mission of this church. And additionally, as you have opportunity to mission efforts around the world. Fortunately, when you give to the mission of this church, you are automatically giving to some very noble efforts around the world. In fact, to encompass people and projects alone, this church gave close to $300,000 last year and could be close to or over $10 million in the history of our church. This church, in many ways, has put its money where its mouth is, and I commend you for that sacrifice. Letitia and I are recipients of your generosity. And from the bottom of our hearts and from the hearts of staff members through, with Encompass around the world, I say thank you for your kindness. I'm proud of you and I tell others about you. And you know the great joy in investing in things that matter for eternity. To all of us, I just want to remind us, me, of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 8-7. But since you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, complete earnestness, the love that we have kindled in you, see also that you excel in this grace of giving. What does that mean? It means some of you who have been blessed abundantly find the joy of giving generously to things that matter, to God's mission. For some, it means increasing what you're giving to the ministry and witness of this church and through this church to the nations. And for some who, who can hardly imagine, if you have the resources to give anything, it's taking the risk to say, God, I don't know what will supply everything for me, but I'm going to choose to give because it matters to you. Watch how God honors the risk you take with your money. Third thing, pray, give, welcome. You don't need me to tell you that our country is torn right now about the presence of foreigners in our midst, immigrants, refugees, even students. Turn on the TV or some news program and you'll see a food fight every day about that. American history has been enriched by new arrivals and our values affirm that. At the Statue of Liberty We have the words, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. It's part of our history. And yet at the same time, rightfully, we emphasize the importance of legal immigration. What it means to be a country. Whatever the frustrations you might have with the current setup or the the realities of recent years, we as believers need to remember the bigger picture and the bigger priority when it comes to the movement of peoples. We hear that, again, from the mouth of the apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27, Paul says, from one man, he, God, made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this, why? So that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Let me put it as plain as I can. Migration is an act of God and we should primarily see it as a gospel opportunity. So the question is, who's God planted near you, near us from the nations? In particular, exchange students are a ripe opportunity for the gospel. I was in Japan a month ago meeting most of our team there for the first time, and one of our Encompass staff members is a young Japanese lady who spent a year in the United States a few years ago at Cal State Long Beach and came to faith in Christ because of a ministry with Japanese returning students. And now she's part of our team, married one of our staff members, and has a powerful witness among her own people because she heard and saw the gospel lived out here. There are 60,000 people or more not far from here at Ohio State University. And thousands of them are international students. You and I have a connection through Grace Polaris Church called IFI and other organizations whose main mission is to connect with international students, some of whom come from the least reached parts of our world, so that they might know the gospel of Jesus Christ and turn around and share it with those that only they could reach. We have a grand opportunity to take advantage of. Many of you are. I would implore more of us to do so. Give, pray, welcome, forth, send. I've come to the conclusion that the most difficult and most influential resource that we can offer Jesus Christ is us. People. Our very own. Ourselves, our children, our leaders, our most gifted people to send to the nations. We should pray. We should send money. We should send teams and expertise. But if we are willing to send our own people, I'm convinced that the rest of those things will follow in abundance. Think of a military analogy. Just as it takes a massive number of people to identify and train and deploy a limited, specialized number of troops. So it takes a lot of people, a lot of churches, sometimes larger churches, to identify, to train, to deploy specialized witnesses to Jesus Christ that go cross-culturally. And all of us have a role to send. Parents, you do. Children's workers do. Youth workers do. Christian school teachers do. Campus workers do. Mentors do. Pastors do. Mission teams do. It takes an army to send. And the same is true in a church. Healthy churches believe that all ministry is disciple-making and all ministry is cultivating cross-cultural vision and sending. So the question isn't, does that involve me? The question is, how does that involve me? I want you to look again at a brief clip from John Piper as he speaks to what it means to offer ourselves for the sake of the nations.
1: Where do... Missionaries learn to do anything they do on another place. They learn it by being embedded in a local church doing domestic ministries, caring for kids, caring for marriages, caring for neighborhoods. They're embedded in that local church doing that for 10, 20, 30 years, and then they go do it somewhere else. So missionaries grow out of domestic ministries and then Missionaries export domestic ministries. So who's the winner in this? I mean, everybody's absolutely essential. Everybody is essential. See, it involves all of us. It's
0: not for a chosen few, but all of us participate in the sending to the nations. Fifth and finally go. This is really at the heart of what we do as Encompass in working with local churches. Can I be honest? These are really difficult days to identify and mobilize and send workers. There are a lot of reasons for that. Let me name a few. Many churches don't cast a global vision for missions. Many believers are uncertain about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation. Many people look around the world and say it's too dangerous. There's too much chaos to send. Many realize that to be an American in today's world is not quite as appealing as it was three and two and even one generation ago. Most of us are more risk averse, safety addicted than ever, especially with our kids. That last one, especially for parents, is a major obstacle for sending workers to the nations. 29 years ago, Letitia and I got married. 26 years ago, she and I left for long-term service in Berlin. All of our kids were born during that decade there. And one of the greatest gifts that we received from all four of our parents was this. While they were sad about the distance... While they recognized that there would be missed encounters in the years to come, they were genuinely excited about the possibility that God could use their own children for great commission purposes to the nations. And they told us that. My wife and I never felt guilty or guilted by our parents for being open to God's redeployment elsewhere. And I owe them For eternity. For their kindness. You have kids. You have grandkids. I challenge you. If they're over the age of 10. That sometime this week. You look them in the eyes. And you say. I don't own you. Jesus does. And whatever and wherever. He calls you to serve. I support that. And consider. If that might be. To be sent. To the nation's. Siblings in God's family, I can think of no more opportune, no more urgent time for us to labor together in the mission of Jesus Christ. Not a time for any of us to sit on the sidelines. Not a time for any of us to be distracted by lesser things. Not a time for the news to overwhelm us or comforts to steal our priority. No, as Steve Richardson writes son of Don Richardson, who wrote Peace Child, taking the gospel to the South Pacific. The most important thing happening in the world today is the advance of the gospel to the ends of the earth by the power of the Spirit. The most important newsworthy thing. The gospel is intended for the whole world and the Great Commission is for all of us who know Christ. And every Christian should understand God's big picture plan for redeeming the peoples of the earth And to find their place within the worldwide harvest efforts. And I invite you, I implore you, I join with you in finding your place, our place in that cause. Jesus invites the whole church to invest their lives in his mission. Before we sing, I'm going to invite you to stand and we are going to read off the screens perhaps the preeminent psalm. That speaks of the nations. Go ahead and stand. And I'd invite you to to read with me. With conviction if you believe it. What the psalmist says. About our lives. And about the nations. Psalm chapter 67. Say it with me. May God be gracious to us. And bless us. And make his face shine upon us. So that your ways may be known on earth. Your salvation among the nations. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. The land yields its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. May God bless us still so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. Amen.